0: unpacked is a podcast on marriage through a cultural and racial lens hello i'm jim
1: and hi i'm Sai. jim and i are both among americans we have known each other for 23 years and we've been married for 19 of those years we have five children two boys and three girls
0: As preparation to celebrate our 20th year of marriage, we are unpacking how we found each other, choices that changed us, parenting as a couple, our grief and trauma experiences, and our marriage.
1: So before we get started, I just want to thank you for being here with me today. 19 years of marriage is a very long time. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and I want to thank you for doing all that. I also want to thank you for sitting with me here today to share our story, to unpack, and to do this podcast. It means a lot to me.
0: Thank you for that, Sai. And 19 years is a long time. I'd like to say that the pleasure was mine, but it's actually the both of ours. And you're my favorite person. You know that. Um, Anytime I get a chance to do any kind of work with you, spend any time with you, I want to do that. So I think a good place uh, for me to start is culture and how I understand the Hmong culture through my role as a Hmong son.
1: Yes, I think that's a great place to start um, it would be great if you tell us a little bit about that and tell us how that led you to me.
0: So I was the first to be born here in America in my family. Uh, my father had two wives at the same time. He married them 20 years apart. So that meant that uh, some of my siblings and I are literally like a generation apart. Like for example, my older brother is 19 years old, older than I am. And his role as an older son in our Hmong cultural tradition is to carry on the legacy of my father and be a leader in our Hmong clan. Whereas my role as the youngest son, I was next to last to be born in our family. Uh, From my, uh, my mother, who was a second wife, my role was to take care of my parents as they uh, went into old age and I was supposed to marry a wife to help me do that and that's kind of where I was led to you at least at the onset of my role as a son in my Hmong family.
1: Was I what you expected when you met me?
0: Uh, I think um, by the time I met you I did not have the expectations that I did uh, growing up any longer. Uh, A lot of things had changed along the way so um i had adjusted my expectations of who i should be with and how i should be meeting people (laughs) so um i was i was open to meeting whoever you are
1: (laughs) you know i met you through a very non-traditional way um most people i knew you know they were getting forced into a marriage they were getting arranged into a marriage or they were getting kidnapped into a marriage. And by the time I was 19 years old, I found myself alone without a person in my life. I found myself struggling in college. I found myself with no real job or a career mine. It was really hard. It was really hard to be a 19-year-old. Most girls I knew, from that time were often in a marriage. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to search for alternatives, right? If I wasn't gonna be in a marriage, then what could I be? And I started looking and I think that's how I found you. I just wanna give a little bit of background. Jim and I actually met through the internet. We met on a Hmong website that's no longer here and we can't even remember the name of that website, right?
0: No, I can't remember it either. It doesn't exist anymore. I want to talk a little bit about what you said uh, from before about um, how you saw how other uh, Hmong women were marrying off at the time. Uh, from a Hmong Sun's perspective, that's kind of what I witnessed too. Uh, some, a lot of people, people around uh, my age and your age were just getting married because I think that's what was expected. That's kind of what uh, our parents brought us up to do. That's kind of what my parents brought, us, brought me up to do. Um, but by that time, I didn't have parents anymore. Uh, my father died when I was 14. You know, My mother remarried two years after. And I had spent a little bit of time between the age of uh, 16 and 20 before I met you without those expectations. So I had to figure things out for myself uh, during that time. Uh, it was a very trying time, and I questioned. I questioned a lot about uh, how I was brought up by my parents. I questioned a lot about growing up here in America. So when I met you, I did not. Um, I was someone who was um, what I call. I was what I call a um, skeptic survivor, right? Um, at that point, um, I didn't have a, a mother. father anymore so I was like in survival mode I I felt like the choices I had to make had to be a very good choices because I did not have that safety net to fall back on Um, I was skeptical because um, I questioned a lot I questioned a lot about um, expectations growing up uh, as a Hmong son and again living in this country and by the time I met you I was ready to meet someone who was kind of in the same mode I was, where, where they questioned themselves and how they were raised by their parents, and they questioned their role uh, being here in this country and what that meant. And that was, I think that's that's kind of who you are, and that's what attracted me to you.
1: You know, I didn't start questioning myself until probably in my mid-teens, right? I grew up in a large family. I had a total of seven sisters and three brothers. I was one of the oldest ones. Um, I was also one of the first to be born here in America. Um, so I had an older brother, an older sister, and then I had a younger sister and then two brothers and then the rest were my sisters. I was sort of fed with what you were fed with, right? To get married um, to a husband and then to care for his family. So that was what I was fed growing up and that's what I believed in as well. You know, I didn't believe in dating relationship. I believed in marriages that I grow up and I jumped right into marriage. But when I got into my adolescence and suitors started coming around, I was not a choice of theirs. Simply because I was I was one of the smaller ones among my sisters, my two sisters, my older sister and my younger sister. So I was not favorable. I stood, you know, I stood at four feet seven. I weighed around 100 pounds. And a lot of the feedbacks that I got was that I was too small. I couldn't bear children. And I couldn't do the heavy lifting or carrying if I was to be married. I think by the time I was 16, um, most of my cousins, most of the girlfriends that I had, They were already married off, and here I was, just very lonely.
0: I think um, by the time I met you, you said that you weren't the ideal uh, prototypical wife material. (laughs) I don't think I was the prototypical um, husband material either. (laughs) I, I often wondered if anybody would want someone who doesn't have mother and father because that's kind of what you bring into a marriage right when you get married in the mong traditional way Mm -hmm. you bring your family to meet the other person's family and if you don't have that you're kind of seen as someone who's inferior absolutely so you weren't typical i wasn't typical it seemed like we were just right for each other
1: (laughs) you say that now (laughs) No, but you know what? I was not looking for a husband when I first met you. I already knew that I was not going to be a homewife. That was not what I was going to be. So because I wasn't going to be that, I was looking for relationships that were not really traditional relationships. Um, And I was also looking for more than that. I was looking for a different way of being me a different way of being mong um when i came across your profile i was really surprised that there was mong folks living out in texas during that time the mong populations were sort of segregated in minnesota um wisconsin california and north carolina but to to hear that there are mong out in Texas, that, that was just really unheard of.
0: So so it sounded like I was a person who sort of fit that mold. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to make a distinguishment, right? Um, non-traditional doesn't mean American way, right? Because um, some, some of the things I witnessed people doing during that time was if they weren't going to get married the way that they were brought up to do at a young age, typically between like their late teens and early twenties, if they weren't going to do that, then what they typically do is they marry someone who isn't Hmong or they throw themselves into their work and that's just what they commit to. And they don't have much time for family life anymore. And I met some of those uh, people back then and that didn't really uh, draw my attention right? Um, to me, that wasn't the answer. Uh, to me is more like there had to be something more than what my parents taught me, than what my clan taught me, than what America allowed me to be. I was trying to lay the groundwork and push the envelope to evolve. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? A different way of being Hmong. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, when we met when we met each other we kind of saw that in each other yeah and we gave each other that opportunity but um to me mong and american is is a paradox that was one of the main conflicts i was trying to resolve before i met you right Mm -hmm. because to be mong to me was to be while that meant uh clan that meant um kinship that meant um brotherhood in my community in america mong means that you're a perpetual stranger you're a perpetual Mm -hmm. foreigner but at the same time i was born in america which afforded me uh, citizenship in a country so there was this paradox of not belonging but i do have a country yeah and i and i always found that very difficult to resolve this is that this led me to do one of the one of the works that I needed to do to meet you, right? Because we didn't we didn't randomly just meet online, right? There was a path at least for me to get there.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for naming the Hmong and american experiences as a paradox. I think that's really important because we as a Hmong community quite hasn't caught up to the fact that we live in this contradiction. For me, back then, I was doing a lot of the work of differentiating the difference between my Hmong experiences and my American experiences in order to understand what I was experiencing, Right? And for me, that was really important because then I can begin to make choices, meaningful choices and impactful choices that can really grow me to be something more than a wife and this independent individual woman. And what attracted me to you was that you were home. You were a son. You were a brother. You belonged to a clan, a people. And you had lived experiences that were very similar to mine. And yet, you were isolated away from being home in Texas. You know, when I told my mother that you were coming to get me, she had told me that you were not a good choice for a husband. And she had explained that because you were an orphan, and if I was to marry you, that my life would be really poor. She also said that because you had come from a household with more than two wives, that you were likely to take after your father and marry another wife. And that when you do, I was going to be alone in our marriage. So she really discouraged me from marrying you.
0: I think I mentioned this before earlier in the podcast is that this is the atypical thing that I bring to a marriage, right? I bring, I bring a diminished asset. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the typical um, own husband. Right. Um, so I do bring a lot of those challenges You know, and Tunjo in Hmong means you're an orphan, right? Which means that you don't necessarily belong. That no one, you have no cultural or no social capital that anybody could um, tie themselves to, right? To benefit themselves and to you. Um, I literally had to uh, build myself up. And that's the work that you're talking about, Sai. You know, that if you marry me, then... We're building this from ground zero. There is no social capital. Oh, you know, there's no relative to call. You know, no nobody to help child care for our <laughs> children. No relative to come for cultural expertise. Uh, no relative to call for additional income if you ever need to raise any money. I mean, that's the stuff that your mom was talking about.
1: That's why I married you anyways. I wanted to come as who I was already and I wanted to build us with what I was already right and with who you were already
0: so this is an interesting story that I want to share when when I came back from being deployed and my sister was having her wedding that spring I came back in oh four my sister was having her wedding like in May um I invited you to come to my sister's wedding Mm -hmm. and you were there so after my sister's wedding I told my family that I was gonna marry you Mm -hmm. and my my family did not take that well you know so what they did was they they huddled me in a room and they said you know you should really just uh, go back to uh, college and finish your college and uh, get a good job and do all that before you get married kind of like the American way right there right <laughs> there it is again a job is the a solution to all the problems right and I wavered and I listened to them so mm-hmm. I came back to you and I said yeah we should hold off on being married not right away and Let's focus on going to school and getting a job first, and then we'll marry later. And you did not take that well.
1: No, I didn't. I was really upset. I had spent a whole entire year and a half waiting for you to come home from your deployment. And for you to retract what you had committed to me was really disappointing. So, of course, I was really upset that and it was a really crucial time period in my life. My father was diagnosed with nasal pharynx cancer, stage four, and I didn't know if he was going to live or not. So I had this great fear of not being able to fulfill my role as his daughter. And I really wanted to do that as well. And I had chose you to be that person to fulfill that role with.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So, yes. So when you told me to hold off on marriage, I was pretty upset because, um, or I did not take that well. Because... I sort of had put myself on hold so that we can be together.
0: Yeah, so you didn't take it very well, and you let me know about it. But then I thought about, at first I thought I should listen to my my family, because as a Thunjo in my family, anytime someone gave me some advice, counsel, or words of wisdom, I'm like, I was so hungry for that that, mm-hmm. I would just eat that up because I've been so deprived of that, right? So that was tempting to listen to them and do what they say and be a good son. But then I thought to myself, where has that consistently been these last few years? You know, after my father passed away and after um, my mother remarried, you know, when has my family consistently had my best interest and in consistently given me this, these types of counsel? You know, so I just came to the realization that my family is just not that reliable <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh, life, uh, coaching, uh, anything of that nature. And I went back to the source. I went back to the source of my struggle, you know, and I realized that my work right now is to is to build, build a family, you know, and that's what I need to do. Um I don't have parents to take care of any longer. You know, as the, as the youngest son of my family, there is no mother and father to take care of in my old age. You know, I'm literally at a point where I, I need to build my own family and that's what I need to focus on. So listening to my family whom don't really exist anymore, I can't afford to do that. So that's why I turned my attention back to you. And I just said, I'm going to get you. So let's get, we're going to get married here.
1: (laughs) So this is leading us into choices, right? Would you say that that's one of your choices, life-changing choices that you made for us?
0: That's one of them. Uh, That's an individual choice that I made, you know, and thank you for asking that uh, side, because that's one of the, toughest things as a Hmong son to do is set boundaries with the family. Mm-hmm. Right. Oftentimes Hmong sons just do what the family says because that's kind of where the loyalty is. And you may not have that kind of loyalty to your wife. Right. But um, that was an important individual decision that I made setting boundaries with my family and saying that this is what I'm going to do. Yep. You know, and while um, that kinda of set the precedence for uh, prioritizing you over my family as we go into our marriage that also um, had some drawbacks about how my family looked at me at, from that point on. Yeah. What would you say is an, an important individual decision that you had to make?
1: So my decision that changed us was when I decided to jump on that plane The day after you called me to tell me you were being deployed to go overseas you know good girls don't do this kind of stuff because it brings shame to the family right this was before we got married in fact this choice to come and see you was actually how we got together and i like to think that we are here together today because of that choice that choice that I made to get on a plane to come and see you before you were deployed overseas right because we weren't dating before we didn't have any other relationship other than we were occasionally talking
0: we had an on and off long distance relationship yeah which was More inconsistent than it was consistent.
1: But it was that inconsistency that created this buildup of curiosity. Big enough for me to go against my value as a daughter. You talked about this work that we've done. And if it wasn't for the work of differentiating my lived experiences, I don't think I would have been able to make that choice to come and see you off. But because I've done that work, that choice of coming to see you was a very simple choice.
0: Yes, and I, when you made that choice, I knew exactly what it was when you did it. Because you weren't the only person I called. Because uh, the Army doesn't give me very much notice when it's deploying me. I literally got my orders and two weeks later I was going to deploy.
1: Two weeks later? I thought it was three days later.
0: Um, it was, it was about ten days. Okay. Ten days, um, but that's the, that's still not a lot of time. No. Um, I had to transition from civilian life to military life in two weeks. That's that's not a lot of time at all. Um, so I was calling everybody up, everybody who would worry if I was gone for a long time and they didn't see me, <laughs> basically, because that's what would happen. Because I would be going to um, Iraq or Kuwait. Um, so you were one of those persons and I called a lot of people and some people called me back, wished me well, you know, said that I was, um, brave and courageous for doing what I do and they support me. But you, Si, were the only one who actually came to visit me, you know, and for someone who has been left by their mother, someone who did not have their father, I was not spoiled with people in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you took the time out of your life to do what you did, that meant a lot to me. Because up to that point, four years living as a Thunjoa, nobody does that for me. Yeah. I mean, if anything, people would say, good, you're out of my life. <laughs> That's the life of a Thunjoa. But um, you, yeah, you came to see me off. And I think you're right. That, that did change the trajectory of our relationship. So let's talk about some choices we made as a couple, right? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that I want to talk about is that when we first got married later on that year, the same year I came back in um, 04, we lived with my brother in Texas, Mm -hmm. you know, and we didn't live with him long, just a few months before we got our own place, But after living in our own place for a while, I can't say for you, but I knew that we didn't really have a future in Texas, Mm -hmm. right? Because if we were to have kids, I didn't want to raise them there. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that one of the first critical and important choices we made as a couple was to move from Texas to St. Paul. I think that's another choice that really changed um, how – we were as a couple
1: absolutely and I really appreciated that choice right so I grew up in a large family in a large community of Hmong folks right and to move away from that to Texas where it was very isolating where there wasn't a lot of Hmong folks um, living out there um, that was really difficult for me um to sort of navigate around and so when um you came to me and we decided to move to to um move from texas back to minnesota right that was
0: that was a relationship altering
1: that was that was relationship altering
0: because because there were models for for me at least there were models for families young couples raising families in texas and i saw that with my brother i saw that with some of my um, uncles who lived there Mm -hmm. i saw that with my sister and her husband and that just that just wasn't what i was gonna do um it it was hard it was hard we wouldn't have childcare. (laughs) you know not like we had a whole lot here in saint paul but we had even less down there and just a whole, I, I think, uh, St. Paul is just a different neighborhood than from, um, where do we live? We lived in um, Plano, right? Yeah, we did. Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Two different neighborhoods. Um, Very different. We would have lived totally different lives had we stayed in Texas.
1: Yep, absolutely. I would say the other choice that we made together was the choice to come home to be with our kids. That really was another life-altering decision that we made.
0: Because I think before, I had a full-time job, and it's like we were living two different lives, two different schedules, right?
1: Yes, and um, by that time, we had had our two boys, and I was pregnant with, you know, our third child, and she was coming and then right after her we had our fourth child
0: so we had Ty, who was four and then dua who's the youngest who was like a newborn yes and right. then you had Thee and gia in between yeah so <clears throat> i think uh when when it was just the and Ty, we we struggled but we managed We did
1: because we had my sisters uh, helping and supporting us with the entire.
0: But once Jia and Dua came along, it just became overwhelming.
1: It did, and not because there was four children, but also because our two boys had special needs.
0: So by the time Jia and Dua came along, I was really thinking about shifting, right? Thinking about somehow shifting to either a job where I could be more flexible and be at home or to no job at all. Yeah. And by the time Doyle was born, um, I literally decided to transition from not working full-time to coming home. But there was a plan, right? Yeah. Because I had served in the military, I was allowed uh, some benefits to go back to school. And the VA actually paid me to go back to school. I don't know what I forget what they called it. Housing allowance. Housing allowance, there you go. Depending on if I went to school part-time or full time. And on top of that, they paid they paid for my schooling. So it was like all expense paid plus housing allowance to literally paying me to go back to school. So
1: well, and then we discovered that if I went back to school I can apply for scholarships, right? So in addition to what the military military was giving you scholarships was also um, going to be helpful as well and supportive and both of us being home.
0: Yeah. So this actually set us on the course of aligning, aligning what we do in the home to what we do outside the home. And what we do in the home now is to prioritize our children and not only being mothers and fathers, but being parents, right? And you can speak more on more on that later on but aligning what we do in the home plus aligning what we do outside the home which is go to school and earn our degrees at metro state
1: so this leads us into parenting so i know that we have sort of mentioned our kids already but i want to go over that again we do have two sons and three daughters our oldest now is 15 and he is on the spectrum with adhd his name is Tai. And then we have Thee. Thee is also on the spectrum and he is 14. And then we have Jia. And Jia would be 12 this year, going on to 13 if she had lived. But she passed away when she was 6. She drowned. Um that was about 6 years ago. And then we have Dua, who is 11, and recently diagnosed with ADHD. And then we have Lucia, who is 3. So those are our children. And I've been home for almost 13 years, caring for them, parenting them. Well, you have been home for the last ten years. Yes. And I, you know I just want to be, and I just want to say that Jim and I are both home. We are both home with our kids. Um, still today. Yes, still today.
0: So let's start with parenting. <clears throat> I want to start with parenting. I want to say that I had no no role model for parenting growing up um i had two mothers and a father but no parents (laughs) (laughs) and that was because mong i think parenting is a very american thing it kind of is but not for the reason that i'm that you may think it is um but i'll explain that my father and my mothers they provided the necessities they provided food uh income they provided a shelter. They provided uh, clothes. Mm-hmm. They provided um, an, a family network mm-hmm. to draw resources and expertise from, which builds culture. But uh, that's not mistake They never, they never, um, they never like guided me and helped me make decisions. It was all about expectations.
1: It was. So for me, when I came home to be with my kids, I really thought, this is what I'm gonna do. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do exactly what my parents did, right? My mother and father did. Um, Let's distinguish parenting from mothering and fathering. (laughs) Because that's what I had to do. So I came home and I immediately thought, well, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna mother my children, right? I'm gonna provide them the basic needs and try to keep them alive. That's what I'm going to do. So much like you, I, I grew up with a mother and a father, but I, I didn't grow up with parenting. You know, I really had to learn what that was for myself. And what I've learned is that parenting is a relationship. It is a relationship that I have with my child and a relationship that my child has with me. And that's, for me, that's what, for us, that's what parenting is
0: so parenting can thus be described as the adults adapting to the child's needs and acting as a guide offering insight and expertise and leading based on the changing priorities of that family over time
1: absolutely and then you can reverse that as well where it's a child right that's guiding and in some ways, supporting um, the parent. And how did you say it? As the...
0: The needs and priorities change over time. Yes. And that's different from what our parents did, which was when we were first born, they already had a set of expectations. And that doesn't change when I'm five. That doesn't change when I'm eight. That doesn't change when I'm 16. I was just born into expectations. That's kind of how it was when I, I was growing up.
1: Yep. And it's the same for me right? My mother just recently passed, and all the way up until the time she had passed, she was my mother, and she was the same mother that she was when I was five, the same mother that I was when I was 15, right? And even the same mother um, during her time of passing.
0: But I, <clears throat> but I want to explain a little bit, about our parents. Our parents never had to deal with this large system of caring for a, a child, right? They didn't have to deal with the medical system, the educational, educational system. system, the political system, the economic systems. They never had to deal with any of that stuff, so they, I suppose they didn't have a need to become parents. But that's what Sai and I needed to do yeah. for our children. And I think that's kind of where parenting becomes something that's more American. And necessary for this country.
1: That itself was a choice, right? Becoming parents and parenting was a choice that we both made to ensure that our children can succeed in who they are.
0: And we continue to make those decisions today as our kids become young little kids to teenagers, mm-hmm. right? I mean the priorities shift over time. And that's evident with our teenager right now. And his needs are not the same from when he was 7 or 8 years old. No. What I liked about uh this part of our life is that we did this together. Mhm. You know, and um I think we set the precedents for this a long time ago, even before we had kids. Do you remember when we worked at um Capital One together? Yes. <laughs>
1: So, that was a long time ago.
0: Yeah. So even before we were married, we worked at the same company in Texas. And you know, when I look back in our life and I reflect on it, there were different points and different times where we did this. You know, mm-hmm. we worked together back then when we first when we came to when Minnesota, we moved to Minnesota. Yeah, when we moved to Minnesota, we would uh, do different projects at in progress together, right? Yep. And when I came home from my full time job, we did a lot of volunteer work at um our kids' public school
1: together. That's what together, we did.
0: Yeah. So and and then when we went to school at Metro, we did a lot of that work together. We, did. we were in we the did. same class together. We at did some have points.
1: some classes together.
0: Yeah. So um, this has been a pattern for us, and we're no stranger to doing this together. And that's what I like about our relationship.
1: I know that's what I love about us as well and I love learning with you. But not everything that we've done together has been as easy as making choices, such as to move to Minnesota or to come home and raise our children together. There has been a lot of grief and trauma that we've experienced before our marriage that we brought with us into our marriage. There is pain that we've inflicted on each other in our marriage there's grief and trauma that we've experienced together before we jump into this next part i just want to take a moment to breathe because it's going to be really painful to get through and there is no other way to get around it but to identify the pain And to be immersed in it. So if you're okay with. Starting out with. The grief and trauma. That we brought into our marriage. We can do that.
0: Uh, For me. um, For me I mentioned before that I'm a tunjoa, But. No one's born that way. I think uh, most people become that way. I think all people become that way. And. To me, that's the grief that I bring into our marriage. It's like these set of expectations that never came to fruition. And yet there are still people in my family that see that see me as that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll explain that more. So again, I, I I said earlier that I was brought up to to care for my parents as they went into old age. You know, that was my role as a son but because my father passed away and my mother remarried, that was taken away from me, you know, and the trauma that I bring in to our relationship is that nobody ever asked me, you know, nobody ever asked me if this was uh, the life that I wanted and it was taken away. No one asked me what that meant to me. It's like things were just happening and I just had to deal with it. And, that was the trauma that i brought into our relationship that when when things happen and i wasn't ever asked or consulted or and things just started to happen for me and i had to deal with it that's when i'm triggered that's the trauma that happens for me yeah you know so it's more like if expectations change and i didn't know anything about it then again i'm brought back to that place of being a thunjua because it's again it's, it's these failed expectations that never came to fruition and somehow i'm i'm left to deal with it now
1: you know for me brought unworthiness with me it was the violence that my mother inflicted on me as her daughter For the longest time, I didn't know that this is what I was carrying with me because I've never had any other relationship outside of my family. So I thought what I was carrying with me was just something that was normal. Right? So when I married you and things that you would do, they, it would triggered this unworthiness and made it which made it really difficult for me to be with you right so I had to do a lot of work to figure out what this unworthiness was and came to understand that, This was my mother's trauma. This was my mother's grief that she had, that she was reacting to. And what happened when she reacted to this grief, this trauma that she had, it impacted me in such a way that I took on this piece of who she was right I don't think my mother ever intended to reject me as her child but that's what she did so anytime you rejected me, or at least I felt that you rejected me, I was triggered, right? This unworthiness was triggered and it made it really difficult to be with you.
0: Yeah, so so what I'm hearing is the shame just sort of shut you down, right? It kind of put you into this, this um, kind of like this mode where you couldn't respond in any way other than what you knew how to respond.
1: Yes, and a lot of that was just violence, right? Okay. So that was what sort of, was happening, right, and I think it took a very long time for us to um, make those connections and come to realization that we weren't being hurtful to one another, right, that we weren't intentionally hurting each other that this was something that was happening to, that this is something that has happened to us, and this is something that we're being triggered with, right, in our marriage. Um, Now, then there is our marriage, right? A lot of things had happened in our marriage that also caused a lot of, would you say, mistrust? and anger and resentment right
0: yes i think so yeah
1: and that's that's something that the both of us have recognized and we're trying to identify and we are currently working on that right
0: yes i think so we we're, we're trying to work through that but, um, you know, for the sake of this podcast, I don't want to go into any specific details. Not quite yet. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: and then and then, there's something that we both experienced that we could have never imagined. Right. I think we mentioned this, or at least I mentioned this earlier on, that the both of us lost a daughter.
0: Yeah. Gia deserves her own sort of category in this podcast um i want to say that for there to be trauma for there to be uh grief there had to have been some joy beforehand otherwise if things were bad before why would you miss it when it's gone
1: yeah
0: right and that goes for the same f- trauma that we bring into um our marriage right there was moments of joy and warmth and love with my parents and i'm pretty sure there was with you with mm-hmm. your mother and father it wasn't all bad because if it was all bad you wouldn't miss it when it's gone like you just wouldn't but talking about gia um her death uh hurt it did and it hurt even more because of how much joy she brought to our family and i want to say this about gia that um, when it was just our two boys, it felt like we were a discombobulated family. But when Gia came along, Gia was like the glue that brought our family together. Um, When Dua came into our family, it was even more evident. Mm -hmm. Um, Gia was the family member that spent time with everybody to get in our family to get to know what they liked Mm -hmm. and whenever she approached any member of the family she understood how to connect with them because she did that work yeah because she did that work Um, she knew how to engage she knew how to be um, she just knew how to bring people together and I always say her superpower is friendship and it didn't just exist in our family it existed in all the places that she was at. Mm-hmm. You know, she was one of those rare kids that when we went to a playground, not only did she make friends with all the other kids on the playground, but she made friends with the friends with the kids' parents. Yes, she did. Like, <laughs> they knew who she was by the time we left the playground. That was just an awesome gift and ability. And, and now that she's gone, I realize how much we don't have in our family. There's no one to do that work. There's a void now. So in the years that after, um, in the years that Gia died, there was just this great void. It felt like we were an incomplete family, right? And after like two years of Gia not being with us, that's kind of when we decided that we were going to try to have another child, Mm -hmm. right?
1: And we knew that this was not a replacement
0: no I've heard other families say this is my rainbow child and you know um Lucia was not gonna be Gia's replacement no, no um Lucia was gonna be her own person she was gonna be her own sister she was her own be daughter in addition yes. to what
1: we had already.
0: Yes, and Gia, what Jia did for our family will always be what only Gia can do for our family. But um, I can say a little bit from my perspective as a father, when, when Lucia was born, um, it was difficult going through the steps again, raising a, a child, raising a baby. You know, when... In the two years after Gia died, I would still take my kids to the playground because they were still little enough. But uh, they were big kids by this point, and they would run off and kind of be on their own. And sometimes the other parents on the playground wouldn't even notice that whose kids were mine, right? But when Lucia was born, and I started taking her to the playground with some of the other kids, some of the other adults on the playground would acknowledge uh, Lucia as a baby. And they were like, oh, what the baby? And everything like that. And stuff like that would be difficult for me. You know, because in my mind, I'm like, here I go again yep. with another child. Knowing that uh, Gia had died not too long ago. You know, I went from bearing a child to having a child be born. Mm-hmm and that's the and i know that when the adults at the other playground were saying that they don't know this about me but that's kind of how it affected me it compelled me to reflect on all the all the uh, roller coaster of experience that i had gone through did you want to add more anything about yeah, that yeah so
1: when we had lucia we were in our early 40s right so when we first had Ty, Ty is our oldest. We were in our mid-20s, right? So um, I think when we had Lucia, we were in our early 40s. So 15 years.
0: We were in our late 30s. Late when we 30s? We had Lucia, yep.
1: So I think if there was a 15 years difference, right? Um. Yeah, you know, I think for me... Um, I think it differs, and for me, so I never imagined Lucia being born, and that is because I never imagined Gia dying, and that's what made it really difficult for me, right, to have a child um, that was never meant to be, and to look at her and be reminded that I had a child that died. Because I don't think um, any parents imagined having children to ev- to only lose them, right? And then to replace them. Although I don't see Lucia as a replacement, I don't, right? And um, I never imagined losing Jia, or I never imagined losing a child. At all, actually, you know, and losing Chia just really altered and changed um, how I view the world, right? And um, you know, people talk about healing all the time, and when I lost Chia, I knew, I knew that that was. That was it. That was forever, right? That there was no returning. So um, with that understanding, I knew that there was no such thing as healing. There was only moving forward, right? And Lucia did that. Lucia came and she helped us move forward. And I think that's how I look at... um, Losing Jia and having Lucia.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult. I have a little bit of a different relationship with uh, Lucia. Mm -hmm. In a sense, um, Lucia and I are the same, you know, because uh, I had an older brother died as a child and this brother's older than my older brother that I mentioned before <clears throat> so if he were alive today he'd be in like in his 60s Um, but he died as a child around I want to say 10 years old and this was in the wake of my father being an officer in the military back in Laos so he wasn't home a lot and this child got my brother here got ill as a child as the story goes this all happened before I was born this child got ill when my father was away and this child uh, died while my father was away so my father did not even get to see this see his own son and as the story goes my my brother was old enough that he could he knew how to write letters to my father while he was um, away from home. And I want to say, I, I don't want to start speaking and doing for my father, but one of the, I think one of the reasons why my father married a second wife is to have more sons,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? And in a way I was the Lucia of my father's family <laughs> and Lucia. So this is like, um, I was born into a family where an older sibling died, and I never knew who that person was.
1: Yeah, You were also born into a family that was already made.
0: That was already made. So was Lucia. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I know exactly what it is to be Lucia in our family. You know, Lucia looks at pictures of Gia, and she's wondering, where's this sister? She's old enough to start picking up on that stuff now when she sees pictures of Dua and Jia together. Mm-hmm. She says, that's, that's Dua. But Then she went, there's this other little girl there. She doesn't know. And I tell her that that's Jia. And she's starting to pick up on these things now. You know? But the, the difference with my family and with Lucia right now is my family never talked about it as I was growing up. In fact, I don't even know this story and if it wasn't for my... Mom in Texas, sort of getting to old age and having some dem- dementia that she's bringing this stuff up. Yeah. Otherwise, this was never talked about growing up. My older brother, who died as a child, was never talked about. And that's not something that we do in our family.
1: No. No, we don't. We try to talk about. As Well, as painful as it is, we try to talk about it and we try to get through it. There's no other way but to really just face the pain.
0: And I think that goes back to what you say about healing. And you and I are kind of on the same page about healing, especially healing as we kind of understand it here in mainstream America as if it's something that you can return to the place you were before the pain. Because I think that's what they mean by healing here. In America. Um, But in my experience, such a place doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. You can't return to a place that was imagined.
1: No, you can't. And just death reminds me every day that there is no such place.
0: And I want to go back to what you said, Sai, about facing the pain. And quite honestly, that's the, only, that's the way I know best. I don't want to say that's the only way, but that's the way I know best mm-hmm. to go about it. Well, uh, for example, being the son of my father and being the youngest, having expectations before me, but not but having those expectations not come to fruition doesn't mean I stopped being that son that I ceased to be that person that I was born to be. I still am that son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so one of the reasons, one, one of the ways that I confront that, at least with my father facing the pain is to walk in his footsteps. Right. That's one of the reasons why I joined the military to begin with cause, because My father was in the military, you know, and even though he's not here to support me and where I am in my family right now, when I, because I did the things I did, I sort of understand him better, right? Having served, being away from your family, having to come back and commit to your community. Yep. And same thing with my mother. My mother left. Uh, my mother left uh, our family two years after my father died. When I was sixteen, uh, that's very hurtful to me. You know, because that's that's different from my father who died and wasn't really his choice. My mom decided to leave and go have a better life with another family, basically. And that kind of left me dealing with the aftermath of not having a father and a mother. It goes back to my trauma that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And now, as I have my own family, when things get difficult, that's that's not what I want to do. When I say face the pain, um, I I suppose different from my mother, where she left and escaped the challenges that she had committed herself to, I don't do those things. Yeah. I stay and i be in some of these uncomfortable spaces because it's not comfortable sometimes, but I stay. And that's kind of what I mean by facing the pain, mm. my whole, my whole service right now on the school board is coping with Jia's death. You know, I didn't mention this before, but she loved going to school. You know, besides spending all her time with her family, the school was the next place where she spent a whole lot of her time. And she loved her school so much. She loved her teachers. She loved her classmates. You know, part of my role of being on a school board is trying to see the school the way that she saw it mm-hmm. and trying to serve the school the way that she saw the school. She saw the best in this school mm-hmm. and it's easy to be in this role and see the ugly things in the role that I am but that's another way that I face the pain and try to cope with Gia's loss because she spent so much time yeah at school and I want to pay that forward to her do you have anything to add to that
1: You know, I think for me, it's not as as elaborate as yours, right, or you. And I don't want to say that that's less than or more than, right? Um, But I do want to say that for me, um, it's really about identifying and recognizing, right? Um, Before, there was no facing the pain because there was no understanding what this pain was. And for me, now the work is really to recognize and identify and sit in that, right? To recognize that this is what's happening and to identify that this is what's showing up. And to say, okay, right, it's um, it's really painful, but I'm gonna sit in it, and I think that's for me. That's that's how I face it.
0: So your faces, your facing is more like just being in that space.
1: I grew up never being told. Right. And not only that, but I also grew up never seeing um, it being act upon. Right. That it was always just doing. And if it wasn't doing, then it was really reacting. And um, a lot of that was from seeing my mother. Right. I want to say that my mother I um, suffered a lot of PTSD from the war, and my mother had lost three daughters before fleeing to Thailand. And through that, you know, um, through all that, well, there was a lot of trauma that was never really recognized and identified, Right. And so what happened was that there was a lot of just reacting, not necessarily appropriate responding, right? And um, that also caused her to sink into these depressive moods, you know, and then um, when it got really bad, then... I wouldn't say that I got the most of it, right? But I think it impacted my siblings and I differently based on, you know, um, our age, our roles, our gender, our temperament, right? Um, Our relation with our mother. Um, Facing really is... Um, recognizing and being able to identify what's showing up, right? So um, I go back to recognizing that when I'm being rejected or denied or dismissed, right, that unworthiness shows up. When I'm being shamed, right, that unworthiness shows up. And
0: learning how to really work with that. So this part was about grief and trauma. And I think um, while we did some explaining of what that is to us, I want to be more specific. Uh, Like whenever in terms of the trauma, for me, it's about, um, for me, it's about um, things changing, things changing without me knowing, without me um, understanding what's going on. And then, but I'm left with the expectations to deal with it. To, To me, that's trauma. Like that's what I'm, triggers my pain mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and grief grief is kind of what I described with um, with Chia and serving in the on the school board and the work that I do right now right grief is an understanding that Chia um, ha- held a certain space in my life she still does even though she is not alive anymore and that space is living through my work. You know, that that space is, who J is to me is living through that work. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's grief.
1: So for me, my lived experiences with trauma has been complexed, right? So I understand that what I have isn't necessarily mine, right? So I understand that trauma is a re experience, but a lot of the trauma that I have isn't quite mine. So I've shared that some of the trauma that my mother had was inflicted onto me, right? And through that process, I was traumatized myself. I was impacted in such a way with how how my mother was reacting with her trauma. So for me, it is a re-experience, but it's a re-experience of another experience. I don't know if that's making any sense, right? But for me, trauma is... An experience that stunts you right and what I found is that I am stuck in this place and when I re-experience something similar to what had put me in this place in the first place right that I get even more overwhelmed I get even more stuck. Right? So for grief, for me, grief is grief has two parts. Grief is an emotional response to the losses that I experience. And then there's the mourning piece. The mourning piece is the action Right to that experience of losing. So, um, a good example is you know, when my mother died, I cried because I was so overwhelmed with sadness that I had to physically release. Right some of that um, out of my body so for me i i think i am still learning what trauma is trying to figure out what those triggers are and what it triggers what what comes up and yeah, I think I'm still grieving over Jia. I haven't quite mourned for her yet, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with just the trauma that I've had in my life where I can't pull myself quite yet out of it um, to start acting mm. and responding um, to some of those experiences. Gotcha. So I know that we're running out of time. We have really started out with culture, who we are. We went into choices, right? Choices that... Really impacted um, us individually and us as a couple to what parenting was, what parenting is, and what parenting um, has gotten us, right, to grief and trauma. And I know that grief and trauma, there's a lot. There's a lot that we can definitely do and unpack. But uh, for the sake of time, this last part um, is marriage. You wanna close us close us out with marriage?
0: Yeah, I could I could do that. So I'm trying to sum up what the first twenty years of our marriage is gonna be, right? And I think about how we came together, and I think about who was there when we came together, and um, as I reflect on it now who was around when we came together isn't necessarily around right now. Like your mother and your father has passed away. Yeah. A lot of my family members have passed away. This is 20 years now, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the people who were there at our wedding, we may have just grown distance from, you know, because relationships change over time. The conditions that brought us together has changed, Right. Like we can't rely on the same conditions that existed back then to keep us together right now. You know, so the first twenty years of our marriage was really to if I were to describe it and I would say it would be to to answer answer the work of the people and all the conditions that brought us together. That's kind of what our first 20 years was, was right. To like pay homage to the people who brought us together to respect them by having relationships with them for as long as we could. So in a Hmong wedding, you make, um, commitments, right. To honor each other's family. That's pretty much our first 20 years of marriage, right. In different ways we've done that. Mm -hmm. As a son-in-law, I've honored your side of the family as... Um,
1: Daughter-in-law, I've
0: Yes, you, done that work. Yep. we both done that work. Um, we've done that work through having a relationship with our in-laws. We've done that work with raising our kids, making sure that our kids have relationships with them, you know, and that extends out to some of our friends mm-hmm. that were with us at that time, not just family, mm-hmm. right? And we've... To the best of our ability, we've sort of went as, as far as we could with the work that we had at the time. <clears throat> Me with the military and you with your organization, right? Those, those, um, those organization has grown with us throughout our, our years. And yeah, if I were to sum, sum, sum up our 20 years, it's about did we do the work of honoring the people and the conditions that bring us together and after 20 years i'd say yes we've done most of that what would you say
1: i would say the same as well yes we've done the work of honoring that
0: but at the same time we can't rely on those to keep us together you know and the conditions that sort of allowed us to come together we can't rely on those same conditions anymore so our next twenty years, I feel like it of marriage. It really is about um, forging new relationships, creating new conditions.
1: So I just want to clarify that both Jim and I did not have an American wedding. We did not walk down the aisle. We did not um, come to the altar together. We did not say um,
0: I do. V- say I, avows yeah, and vows and I do's
1: right we we actually um jim came and he picked me up at the doorstep of my house and uh, whisked me away and took me over to his uncle and then um his cousins um came back and told my parents that you know they had taken me for his wife, uh, to be his bride and afterwards, we had a basement wedding. Um, and that's how we both got married. Um, we got married um, culturally. And then a year later, we uh, went to the courthouse in Plano, Texas. We got our marriage legalized. We, um, we honor, we respected um, that cultural um, process of um, making us husbands and wife, um, bringing our families together. Um, and we, um, work really hard, um, to stay together to honor that process. Um, but like you said, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years has passed And a lot of those people are no longer around, you know, those conditions that um, brought us together. Um,
0: And I think that's a good place to, to end this podcast, right? Yeah. To ask ourselves those questions and work together to figure out what kind of work we need to do.
1: Mm -hmm. And I see us doing this work in the mountains of Montana.
0: (laughs) We haven't even been to Montana yet. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Interestingly, Montana is where the first Hmong settlement came to the United States.
1: Maybe that's why I envision us there. So as we come to an end here, I want to thank you for your willingness and your courage to be with me in this marriage.
0: And so I also want to thank you for your... Empathy, your insight, and also choosing me to marry. I think we complement each other very well, and together uh, we are more than we could have been individually.
1: "Impact" was written and produced by Saitao and Jim and recorded at In Progress, a nonprofit arts group housed in the North End neighborhood of St. Paul as a part of Sound Stories.